All right. Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We're streaming out live on the Alternate Current Radio Network and also at 21stCenturyWire.com. Thank you so much for rejoining us on the live broadcast. If you missed any of the live broadcast, you can catch us on the podcasting platforms after the show, either up on Spreaker, uh, but also iTunes later, Stitcher, and other podcasting venues. Now, uh, our next guest uh, is an independent researcher. He's also have a degree in biology and mathematics. His name is David Crow. Uh, he's authored a couple of research papers recently, released independently. We've got links to those on the show page right now. And uh, is going to walk us through the very strange and uh, unpredictable world of COVID-19 testing. So, David, thank you for joining us on the Sunday Wire this week. So just, just to get started, David, uh, there's two parts, really, of the conversation. I mean, I saw your earlier you know, work uh, and also listen to your podcast on on the PCR tests and how all the different problems there are with this test. This is one of the main tests, if not the main test, and correct me if I'm wrong, that is being used to detect coronavirus and COVID-19. And so we have politicians and health officials saying, test, 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 we need to ramp up testing. This is a really big talking point. And, uh, and this seems to be the main test for that. So that's one well, part. Can we just clarify the the, the, the RT-PCR RNA test is a, is supposedly a test for infection as opposed to the antibody test. So it's the main test in terms of identifying people who supposedly are sick with the coronavirus, even if they have no symptoms. Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's testing the presence of the virus. Um, yes. Supposedly, and then the mm-hmm. antibody test is whether you have antibodies, and right, which is is theoretically that means that you were infected in the past and you no longer are, and maybe you have, <laughs> have immunity. And so, so from your from your research, um, what what are what are the main problems? Let's start with the PCR test, um, because there's a lot of weight being put on mass testing. Um, and we'll talk about the problems with this, the fundamental problems with this type of approach, you know, from a society and a governmental point of view, also all the things that could spring from that. But just firstly, what are, what are the practical problems with, um, with mass well, testing? Yeah, yeah. So the first major problem is that scientists found RNA in some people who were sick with what they thought was a new disease. At no point did they purify a virus. And without purification of the virus, we don't know that the virus exists. So we're now in an interesting situation where virtually every politician in the world, virtually every journalist in the world, every public health official has bought into something that could be an outright delusion. Uh, not a mistake, not a conspiracy, but a delusion. They've convinced themselves that something exists and they haven't proven that it exists. So I'll put that aside because if, if you accept that, then I may as well hang up the phone now and we can, we can go home. There's nothing else to talk about. (laughs) So we'll assume that the RNA, um, represents a virus. So the problem with the quantitative PCR test they use, RT-PCRs, first of all, it's not quantitative. And I interviewed Stephen Buston, who's a world expert on it. 
And uh, he, he made the point that, uh, you know, very simply, the, the process is that you have RNA in, say, a nasal swab. So you first need to extract the RNA, get rid of the DNA, which interferes with the test, get rid of uh, various enzymes and things that can affect later processes. That is not a perfect process. So the amount of RNA you get at step one will vary depending on which lab you do it in um, and lots of other factors. The second stage is that PCR only works on DNA, not RNA. So you have to convert the um, RNA into DNA using an enzyme called reverse transcriptase. And the efficiency of that, according to Bustin, varies by a factor of about 10. So what that means is the amount of DNA you end up with at the end of the second process is, um, can be quite different by probably more than a factor of 10 between different labs. The way you tell if somebody is, or the way you say somebody is positive or negative is by running cycles of PCR. And at each cycle of PCR, you double the amount of material. And you say, for example, if we get to 37, sample, uh, 37 cycles and we haven't found any material, you're negative. The, the choice of cycle numbers in, in tests that are approved by the FDA varies from 30 to 45. Um, so first of all, the cycle number is not quantitative because you're doubling an amount of DNA that will vary depending on, on your first two steps. Um, and yet, they say if you have you know, more than this amount of RNA, you're positive versus negative based on a number that is meaningless. So the whole test has problems that way. And the second point is if you push the test too hard, you can get false positives. Uh, Stephen Bustin recommend, recommended no more than 35 cycles. And the tests, uh, the 33 tests approved by the FDA go from 30 to 45. And only three of them have less than 35 cycles. So what they are doing is they're pushing the envelope because they don't want to miss somebody who's infected. But the consequence of that is they could be generating a massive number of false positives. And they could have generated an entire epidemic by uh, a massive number of false positives. And if somebody tests positive on this test, there's no way to determine whether it's a true or false positive. Yeah, and so, so if, if it's a false positive, then could, could this theoretically be because it picked up uh, 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 something related um, to or another type of coronavirus? Is that that's one a, way of, that's, of having a false positive? Yeah, that's one way, but there's also internal problems inside the test. Because actually on this test, you don't measure DNA. That's impossible. What you do is you measure a fluorescent glow that is, that is artificially inserted into the growing DNA chain. The problem is that the fluorescent molecules, are they're only supposed to glow when you incorporate them in DNA. But if things go wrong, they can start glowing on their own. And so you could get a false light reading, which would be interpreted as a false amount of DNA. Uh, and that's got nothing to do with, you know, the fact that you had an, a related coronavirus or anything like that. That's just an internal problem in the test. So there, there are many things that could go wrong. And then if you let's put aside the technology, um, in one study from Singapore, they, they did almost daily tests. For most people, it was every day on 18 sick people in a hospital. 18 coronavirus patients. The majority of patients went from positive to negative to positive again within a couple of days. Often it was uh, positive today, 
um, negative the next day, positive again the, the day after. Now, if the test is reliable and positive means you're infected and negative means you're uninfected, that means that within three days, people were cured of the infection and then reinfected in a hospital <laughs> with the, the best infection control um, procedures in the world. So there are many possible explanations for this, but none of them make the coronavirus theory look very good. It could be that the PCR test is highly unreliable, but if you took away the, the PCR test, we would not have an epidemic. You'd have no way to tell if somebody had a fever due to the flu or a fever due to the coronavirus. So they need this test. So they have to preserve the test at, at all costs. But they didn't even try to explain how this impossible situation could be happening. And in another uh, uh, paper from China, they documented 29 people. Um, in this case, they had three test results. They had positive and negative, and they had an indeterminate category where you were in between positive and negative. And they had uh, test results, sequential test results, like negative, positive, negative, positive, or negative, indeterminate, positive, basically any combination you could think of. So 29 people who had impossible test results. Um, my favorite example is, is a paper on a Chinese man who went to the hospital with minor symptoms, tested positive coronavirus, um, symptoms resolved, tested negative. So, so far, fits the virus theory perfectly. A few days later, while he was in 14-day mandatory quarantine after being released from hospital, he tested positive again. So they brought him back to the hospital, put him on antiviral drugs. A few days later, he tested negative four times. They released him from the hospital. Three days later, he tested positive again. They dragged him back into the hospital, put him on drugs again. And then after a few days, he tested negative again. So what is this test telling us? I, I think it's gibberish. Well, it, 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 the over-reliance on testing, you can see the danger there. You're putting somebody through the rigmarole of multiple medical treatments and quarantines um, when, in fact, uh, traditional medicine... Uh, David, if I'm not mistaken, would be they treat the patient, they observe them, they release them, and if they show any further symptoms, maybe they send them away to some medications. If they show any further symptoms, they contact the uh, health, uh, the doctor, and and that would be the end of it. But it, yeah, it's like um, there's been a lot of reliance on. Um, x-rays and CT scans to determine if people have pneumonia, for example. But it's, it's actually surprisingly common to have um, a CT scan, especially, interpreted as um, indications of pneumonia, and the patient has no symptoms. And so a, a friend of mine who's a you know ER doctor in New York City said that when he was teaching about this, he said, you must make sure you teach the treat the patient don't treat the tests you know if the patient is perfectly healthy does not have a fever does not have a cough is showing no signs of pneumonia they probably don't have it <laughs> but in this world it's like if you have a positive coronavirus test you're get you've got a deadly infection you might have no symptoms at all but we're going to treat you like infected garbage for two weeks and only if you test negative will we release you from bondage. So, so what are the false positive rates on, because you, you, you've done a graph and you've laid out all the different tests and you've kind of shown the uh, comparisons of them. There's a big range in terms of accuracy made depending on which test, which company's test you're using. 
So you, you've looked at the main, um, on the on the antibody side, we'll talk about that in a minute, but but with the PCR test, with, with antibody testing, you've looked at all of these, and what are some of the, you know, what are the odds of, some of them have quite high false, false positive rates, don't they? Well, um, it's, it's actually not possible to come up with an accurate rate of false positives without purification of the virus, which nobody has done. Like an, an obvious way to validate, say, a PCR test is you, you do the PCR test on, you know, 100 people you, you think are infected because you've got positive PCR, and then you do it on 100 people you don't think are infected. They're healthy, they've got a negative PCR, you know, and then you try to purify the virus blinded from all 200 people. And if you if you purify from the 100 who test RNA positive and you don't purify from the 100 who test RNA negative, then you have a perfect test. But what if you what if it's 50-50? What if you're purifying virus from people who tested RNA negative and you're not purifying virus from people who tested positive? Then you've got a garbage test. And they have no way of knowing this without RNA purification. But there are some there is some interesting mathematics that can be done on based on the prevalence of the disease in the population and based on a standard mathematical analysis some chinese scientists uh, estimated that when you're testing asymptomatic people the rate of false positives is 80 percent and this is a standard calculation called positive predictive value it's taught by anybody who's Studies, anybody who's learning infectious diseases, they'll learn this, this calculation. What it means is the rate of false positives increases as the number of cases in the population decreases. It's kind of an interesting mathematical conundrum. But what does it mean if there's 80% false positive rate? You're now taking people out of the workforce. You're imprisoning them for two weeks. Uh, there are massive consequences uh, to this to having false positives, and you have no way to resolve uh, the problem at, at present. And so, so do you think? I mean, uh, when this crisis really started ramping up, um, at least in the U.S. and the U.K., everyone was saying in the World Health Organization that the talking point was test, test, test. We need to be like South Korea. We need to be like Taiwan. Test, test, test. Contact tracing. Test, test, test. Contact tracing. So this was the mem that was really put out. So the, the the value seemed to be on, you know, the 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 size of the data points. We need data. We need data. So they were going for uh, uh, infection data. Um, uh, it, and, yeah, it, yeah, it's yeah, it's based on you know they they have a very obviously very firm belief that this is in, infectious, and it's like there's there's little points in the country, and if you can, uh, you know identify the hot points by testing, then eventually you'll eliminate those by quarantining those people, taking them out of circulation long enough that they're no longer a risk. And then when you start testing beyond that, you'll have zero positive cases. But my feeling is that the test at least has a very high false positive rate. And what that means is if you tested in a country where there were actually no infections, you would still find one to five percent of, of people positive. And if that is the case, you will never end. Um, I, I think in South Korea, interestingly enough, they seem to be using the test to settle some political scores. And there's two examples of this. Um, one of the, one of them is there's a there's a mega church. It has um, 
you know, huge uh, congregations. And for some reason, the government of South Korea doesn't like it. And they had one woman at uh, the mega church in Daegu in South Korea who tested positive. And then they called her a super spreader because they found 37 of her contacts were positive. So she must have infected 37 people. But she was part of a congregation of a thousand, over a thousand. And so it worked out to around 3% of her contacts were positive. And that was exactly the same number uh, as the number of positive tests in the rest of South Korea at that time. So in other words, if you tested, randomly tested a thousand people in South Korea, you'd probably get the same number positive. And they did the same thing um, you know, there's a lot of sleazy bars in Korea and the government doesn't seem to like them. So when one guy who was coronavirus positive went on a bender and went to as many bars as he could, they must have tested all of the uh, customers of these sleazy bars. And then they found 75 people positive. It was probably similar, like 3% of the people they tested. But this was an excuse to shut down these bars, which they've probably been wanting to do for a long time. Um, so basically, if you do more testing, you will get more cases. And if you get more cases, journalists will write articles about a burgeoning epidemic and we need to have a tighter lockdown. And so the public health officials are completely in charge of the level of panic. If, if they were to put the brakes on testing, then the epidemic would slow down. But what they seem to want to do is they want to keep doubling the number of tests and there will never be an end uh, to this epidemic because, as I say, I think there will be false positives from now till the end of time. I've seen the contact tracing program in, in China, David, and uh, I, I must say it's not something that I would like to be participating in, um, where people are assigned a color code, um, uh, yellow, green, and red, I think. And this restricts your traveling. This, it's also mm -hmm. tied in with facial recognition. I mean, this, of course, is the extreme end of the technocracy, but it's all predicated on this idea that if you're in, if you're infected, quote infected, you're dangerous, and you could spread that infection. Therefore, you're you know a potential super spreader. You must be quarantined, and everybody who was within six feet of you in the last such and such days uh, also has to go into quarantine as well. If they're using the WeChat app. That China right. has. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, um, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I think it's massively intrusive on our rights. <clears throat> now, if if it truly was um, a, a deadly infection, and it it appears, you know, based on mainstream analysis of, on the fatality rate, it is not a deadly infection. It's basically a flu. So, so if it was a deadly infection, if the PCR test was extraordinarily accurate, like 99.999% accurate, and it clearly isn't given the examples I've given. And if the antibody tests were accurate, then you could say, okay, under in an extraordinary circumstance, we have to sacrifice our rights. But what we're sacrificing our rights for is for a disease that's not deadly, for an RT-PCR test that clearly has problems with false positives, and for antibody tests that seem to have equal problems. And, and let me give you an example of the problems I think there are with antibody tests. First of all, it's impossible to validate an antibody test. So, so when the you know fairly famous scientist John Yanidis and others at Stanford did a survey in um, Santa Clara, California, they found 1.5% positive on the antibody test. 
they adjusted that to about 3% based on the, the population they tested. Um, but it's a fairly small percentage. Now, an antibody test is the sum of everybody who's been infected since the beginning, let's say January, up to they did it in April. So January, February, March, April. So about four months worth of infections. Yet, when they test for active infections in the United States, they always seem to get between 10 and 25% positive. So if there was a large, you know, if a significant number of the population had been infected, the antibody test rates should be up in like the 60, 70, 80% range. How could they be 1.5%? Mm. <clears throat> that implies that at any one point in time, um, you know, uh, well under 1% of the population of California were infected, which doesn't seem to make sense because no matter where they, they go around with their nasal swabs, they find 10 to 25%. Positive, and and you can't say that American uh, uh, medics are really great at identifying cases. Uh, recently, um, a survey of a homeless shelter in Boston, uh, they decided for the first time to test asymptomatic homeless people, and they found about thirty three percent positive. They were all asymptomatic. I want to emphasize that. So, how could you have told that these are people who should be tested you, you really can't like we don't know what groups are going to have high levels of positivity they found high levels of positivity in people working in uh, meatpacking plants uh, and other places like that and there may be reasons for that completely divorced from you know being in a, a tight environment with lots of other people and having an infection and i think air quality may be one of those factors yeah, yeah. There's a number of other variables. Um, and I could say that too about the, uh, the 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 supposed the death rate as well. There's a number of other variables besides COVID-19 uh, that can drive up uh, the number of dead that uh, countries have in their running totals, um, na namely the the capability of of treatments, the types of treatments they're giving, how people are you know caring for patients and. Uh, and, and the situations with care homes and nursing homes as well becoming kind of um, incubators, uh, supposedly. Well, one of the yeah. things people don't pay enough attention to, well, I guess there's two of them. One is isolation and one of them is uh, intubation. Uh, if we take isolation, like if you take a very elderly person who's sick with, you know, essentially terminal diseases, they're 85 years old, They've got severe diabetes. Their kidney's not doing well. You know, their heart's wonky. Um, what keeps them alive? Well, it's relationships with their children, their grandchildren, maybe their great-grandchildren. People come and visit them. And we've completely removed that from people. So the question is, if you took a group of um, elderly people in care homes and then completely isolated them, how would the death rate change? I don't believe that it wouldn't go up significantly. <laughs> No, no, exactly. Uh, because these people are basically lying in bed all day. You know, a nurse comes in, does something quickly, leaves. Somebody brings a meal and leaves because the staff see them as an infectious risk. Um, I think the neglect has been killing um, a lot of people. And then incubation has proved to be an unmitigated disaster, which they should have known because it was an unmitigated disaster during SARS. 
Um, but a paper in, in New York City reported that of 60 people 65 and over who were intubated, there was a 97% death rate. They essentially killed everybody. And in people under 65, it was still a 76% death rate. So this business that was, you know, in March, everybody was saying, you know, if you don't want more in, uh, uh, ventilators, uh, then you're a heartless person who wants people to die. It was completely the opposite. If you want more ventilators, you want to kill more people because putting people on ventilators is going to kill people. And this is the most egregious factor is that one of the reasons to put people on ventilators is not for the benefit of the, par the patients, not because the patients are so oxygen deprived. It is because hospitals believe that a ventilated patient is not an infectious risk. And so the patients are being ventilated for the benefit of the hospital and the medical staff, not for the patient's own benefit. And this is completely the opposite of what they like to talk about, which is patient-centered care. This is hospital-centered care. I believe that it's not true that these patients are an infectious risk. It was proved false during SARS, where they used the same logic. Um, but I believe that was the reason for the massive number of people who were ventilated. But I think doctors quickly realized that they were killing the vast majority of their patients. And they rebelled against the hospital's dictates that they intubate you know, at the drop of a hat. Yeah, and that was the big talking point early on in the crisis and mm -hmm. in the West. We need more ventilators. We need more ventilators. Um, and so yeah, I, I remember Cuomo going on and saying, "We're going to get twenty-five thousand. Um, you know, California wants twenty-five thousand. You know, where are we going to get all these ventilators from? Like, this is a crisis." Um, I, I think if if New York did buy twenty-five thousand ventilators, they're probably like 24,900 are sitting in a warehouse and will never be used. No, they won't. And Donald Trump retasked re General Motors to build ventilators. And that was seen as a great victory under the uh, Wartime Defense e Economy Act. Oh, I forgot that. I hope they build them better than Chevys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're going to need another bailout probably to keep going with their vent business. But but uh, Trump was very proud of the fact that he was exporting ventilators. We're exporting vents. And you're like, well, you're hoping they don't put anybody on those ventilators that doesn't absolutely need to be on them, um, that that definitely drove up the, the death rate. But to this issue of immunity passports, now you've just explained there's huge problems with uh, with testing. And you can explain some of the problems with the antibody testing as well. But this idea of immunity passports, this is going to basically be reliant on a heavily flawed set of, of available tests. And that immunity passport is, policymakers are talking about Using you have to produce that to be able to go to work, uh, to be able to travel. Just the idea of testing somebody at work, like you said in in you, I think it was your antibody paper. How often do you test them? Every every 24 hours. I mean, when does it, it end? Once you start on that cycle of mo uh, medical surveillance, it, there's there's almost it can be no end to it using these particular tools. Um, it's uh, a nightmare. I don't know. Well, what are your thoughts on this? I um. A few years ago, I read a, a, a BBC article that was, was actually quite um, moving. It was about typhoid carriers in the, er, between 1900 and 1950 uh, in England. And so these women, and I don't know why it was all women, um, 
but they were considered typhoid carriers. They were healthy women who tested positive on a typhoid kit test. They built an asylum within an asylum. So they took an insane asylum and in the middle of the insane asylum built an inner sanctum where these 50 women um, were placed in total isolation. They each had a room. They were not allowed to leave the room to socialize with others. The nurses wore uh, PPE all the time. The toilets flushed boiling water. And this is, this is not uh, a joke. This actually happened. And they said in this BBC investigation um, of, of what had happened, which was, I think, 2008, uh, that these women were so isolated that they basically all went insane, even though at the start of the process, they were all physically healthy and, and mostly mentally healthy. I'm not going to say that none of them had, didn't have emotional problems. Um, in 1992, they, they stopped putting women in this asylum in the 1950s. By 1992, there were still three women um, alive when they closed the insane asylum and they had to move them uh, somewhere else. So they kept these women in imprisonment on the basis of a test that was probably flawed. I mean, when do you read about uh, you know typhoid tests these days? But this seems to be a model for what can ha happen when you treat a biological test as 100% accurate and you have these, these pathological cases of people who you know get infected with coronavirus because they've got an RNA test, so you assume they're infected, and they never generate antibodies. I mean, are we going to build big asylums, big, uh, you know, and and keep these people in there in in prison permanently, or or they won't be allowed to work, or they won't be allowed to fly on airplanes? Uh, I mean, it could get really dark. Because you you said you've shown in in your antibody paper that. You know the the graphs that the uh, the FDA or the industry like to present as this kind of exact science of you know when you get infected and then antibodies appear at this point this at day fourteen and and it's a it's a nice symmetrical graph, but the reality yeah. is that it does vary massively uh, from person to person. Is that right? right? And we, yes, and we also have this this issue with antibody tests. So we actually, in most cases, cannot. There's been no attempt to really do proper testing. For example, how do you know what the day of infection is? And there may be a few cases where you say, okay, so this person had a meeting with this other person who, who uh, you know, was a little bit sick and later was a coronavirus patient. So therefore, on March 1st, this person was infected. Well, you don't actually know that because apparently by the banning of uh, concerts and soccer games and and uh, going to restaurants and bars and going to the gym, we can get infected silently at any time. So you don't know that this person was infected on that date. They might have been infected earlier or later. So there, in, in the validation of these tests, they never know the start date. And yet their theory about the development of antibodies is based on the number of days from the start date, which is unknowable for the vast majority of, of people. And even if you put that aside and say, okay, well, we'll, we'll um, you know, use the date of start of symptoms, which, which could be you know, three days, five days, two weeks from when you were infected, according um, to, to theory, then you still have lots of anomalies like people testing negative. 
What they would have to do is they would have to take a large number of people and they would have to test them, like, per, uh, hopefully, uh, it would be best if it was daily, but that might be too intrusive, so let's say weekly. Uh, people who are negative on all tests, so they're negative on RNA, negative on antibody tests, and then follow them. And once they test RNA positive, follow them to see how long that lasts, and uh, follow, then start monitoring antibodies. And, uh, you know, verify that the antibodies are produced on an average of so many days after the RNA is first seen and, and things like that. That would be the way to do it, but nobody's done anything close to that. So really, the theory that they know um, how quickly antibodies are generated, that they even know that antibodies are generated, it's all theory. And the validation of these tests is, is a slapdash job uh, in order to get FDA approval. You got to put something into this short document uh, that looks okay to the FDA. Yeah. So the FDA doesn't themselves, uh, you know, do um, validation uh, in their labs. They don't. I know they don't do that anymore. Pretty much full stop. The industry just supplies a report, and the FDA rubber stamps it. Is that right? Yeah, and that was the same with HIV tests. You know, the industry said, this is the validation that we did. Well, you know that we can trust industry because of, like, the Volkswagen gas mileage scandal, right? Like, you would never have a big corporation writing software to cheat on a test. <laughs> but sure. in this case, you don't even have to write software to cheat. You just send in a piece of paper that says, we did this. I mean, let's say that there is a problem. You you say, well, we're going to prove that um, you know our test doesn't uh, do false positives on on HIV, and you, and you run the test, and it's like ninety nine percent false positives. So you go, hmm, maybe we don't really need that. Maybe you could just leave that out. We'll do, you know, we'll we'll do uh, some other virus instead, right? So as long as we put in like twenty tests for cross-reaction, doesn't really matter what we have. So maybe we'll do 30, and the, the 20 that look best will go into our documentation. H how do you know that the manufacturers are not gaming the system that way? I mean, the manufacturers are very well aware that if they send in documentation with a bunch of red flags, you know, like 99% false positives on some other virus or, or on autoimmune conditions or on, um, uh, you know, after a flu vaccine or something like that, their test will probably be rejected. So funnily enough, all the test uh, documents that get submitted don't have any red flags. Oh, okay. Yeah, of course they wouldn't. Um, uh, yes. I mean, I, any intelligent person, I've worked in industry and it's like, I'm not going to submit something to the government that's um, you know, going to result in immediate rejection. I mean, maybe if I'm really honest, I would eventually, uh, but I would probably just withdraw the test, right? I would never submit documents. We would just decide our test isn't working, so we're not going to submit it. But you would never submit documents that say our test doesn't work. But there is about 20 companies that have submitted, you know, various uh, validation test documents, and um, they all sort of made it sound like their test was 99% accurate. Okay, so so you heard about this story from, from Tanzania this past week. Uh, papa, was, papa fruit and the goat. Yeah, a, a, a goat, a quail, and a papaya fruit, and I guess an old basketball shoe, all tested positive 
for coronavirus. What happened there? Well, how is that possible? It's it's a it's a a really good question. Uh, there's lots of possibilities. It could be cross contamination in the lab. They could have really sloppy procedures in the lab, so they could have got coronavirus RNA from legitimate samples that contaminated the pawpaw fruit sample. Or it could be that there's something in the pawpaw fruit that interferes with the proper, uh, you know, uh, proper production, the proper procedure of the RT-PCR test that causes a false positive. And goodness knows what that could be, right? It could be some enzyme in the pawpaw um, that's not removed by the standard process. Y you know, a, a, um, Maybe I feel like the RNA might be associated with respiratory challenges. And, you know, mammals are all relatively similar in their respiratory systems. So it's possible that the goat had this RNA because of something in their respiratory system. I, I don't know. It's, it's like you can imagine any number of, of explanations for this, but it does illustrate um, that that there's a problem. Now, the way they will get around dealing with this is they will say, oh, the lab in Tanzania, you know, it's Africa. It, it was a lousy lab. It was just bad procedures. It would be very nice to see this done at one of the top labs in the United States. If somebody submitted some, you know, variety of samples from a variety of sources that had nothing to do with humans and coronavirus. Because it may very well happen here and it would be a lot harder to to walk away from it if it happened at, say, one of the big commercial labs or the Wadsworth lab in New York State. The, the UK government ordered uh, a big uh, batch of tests. I mean, uh, they spent millions and they were all contaminated, apparently, with uh, coronavirus. From Ch I think they ordered them from China. I'm not sure. But I don't know if you saw some of these stories as well. So, so on the testing side, is it possible that it's tainted coming from the manufacturer? Well, there's a there's a lot of different uh, possibilities, but we we know so little, and there's there's really no attempt to validate. Like I, I recently heard, um, and I'm, I'm still trying to track this down, that the UK announced their first batch of antibody test results at something like 26 percent positive, but in Santa Clara, California, it was 1.5 percent positive, and and. These numbers don't make sense to me. I, I can't believe that they're both true. So who's done uh, antibody testing uh, with every sample sent um, processed with three different tests? And, and what if one of those tests says 5% are positive and one says 25% are positive and one says 13%? I mean, what would you do then? Obviously, two of the three tests are wrong, but you have no way of knowing which two of the three tests. Because when you have an antibody test result in somebody who's not previously been documented having being RNA positive, you're assuming that at some time in the last three or four months, they were RNA positive. You have absolutely no evidence that that was the case. Uh, in more than half the cases, they say they had no symptoms. So you ask them if did they have a fever or cough or whatever, about half the time at least, they say they didn't have symptoms, and in, in cases where they did have symptoms, there could easily be other explanations for that. Um, you also assume that the antibodies just arrived, right? That that if you tested this person in December last year, uh, 
there wouldn't have been antibodies. But they've tested old blood, and in a study in Holland, they found 14% of old blood samples, that is 2019 or earlier, tested positive for COVID-19-specific antibodies. So there's just numerous uh, um, you know, pieces of information that tell us that these antibody tests are not accurate, and we have no real way to, to say, okay, in the, in, the, in the case of this person, we know that in February they were infected because they were RNA positive. We can't go back in time. And so you just have to trust the antibody test. And it doesn't seem like the results are consistent enough just on that basis that you can trust them. So, so between the between the PCR tests, between the viral detection test, the antibody tests, um, there's two potential you know problems there. The only way that that you're suggesting to to really get a handle on this is to get a a big enough sample of people. This is going to be an expensive operation, obviously, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. to do multiple. Uh, tests and data points over a long period of time and then to be able to crunch that together to get a clear picture of what the real situation is. Um, that's the only way you can do it. But it, they would say it's cost prohibitive and you made the argument quite rightly that, well, nothing should be cost prohibitive if they can, the, the U.S., for instance, can write off a $10 trillion uh, uh, check and stick that on the Federal Reserve. Anybody, anybody who uses excessive cost as a reason for not doing good science in in the environment where like you say they're throwing around trillions of dollars you, you know on on supporting people who are unemployed because of fear of this virus i mean that's that's crazy we need good science and this is a case where you can't rely on the manufacturers to do this it, it, it would be expensive for manufacturers and a lot of them wouldn't have the financial resources but this is something that the fda could certainly contract out, right? You know, get a thousand people, um, volunteer to do weekly swabs, and then once they test RNA positive, you go into, um, uh, you know, intensive uh, testing. And, and you would have to test for antibodies before they tested RNA positive, because if you start getting positive antibody tests before these people have ever tested RNA positive, then, um, you know, you, you, you've identified a problem. If you have people that become RNA positive and stay that way for a long time, you've got another problem. If they become RNA positive and, you know, after a month, there's no antibodies, you, you've got another problem, right? And, and uh, you don't know if it's the problem with the test uh, or a problem with your viral theory, but you'd have a lot of data that you could work some of these things out on you'd certainly see patterns and those patterns might not fit very comfortably with the current simplistic viral theory. Yes. Yes. So, so from, in, in terms of usefulness, everything that you've described, you know, from, from the beginning, so mass testing, mass PCR testing, or just testing for the presence of the virus to me, and uh, you, you might agree. And of course the Stanford team agrees that's not particularly useful. It's not as useful as doing random sample 
serological serological tests where you can then use that antibody uh, information to do an average of what the total you know, um, uh, infection pool might be. And from there, you can get a more accurate infection rate, fatality rate. So that's more useful than the mass PCR testing. Or, and then what you've described, the last one is a more intricate um, using multiple tests with a big enough sample group over a long period of time, and then you can really learn something really accurate from that. So one, one, well, one two, three. Right. One caveat with the antibody testing is it's only useful if you know that the antibody tests are accurate, and, and we don't. So Ionetis is 1.5%, might have been 15%, or it might have been 95%. Right. Like I could say it's 95%, and, and you could not prove me wrong. Yeah. You you might say, well, it doesn't make sense because the antibody test is only reading 1.5%. Well, maybe it's a really lousy antibody test. Why is it so much higher in the United Kingdom? I don't think it should be that much higher. But again, we have no way of knowing if the antibody test used in the United Kingdom, which is probably different than the one I need us used, is uh, you know significantly more or less accurate. So, so we, we basically have all of these tests are not founded in reality. And the PCR test needs to be founded on, uh, you know, anchored on purification of the virus. If it's anchored on purification of the virus, we know that the RNA test is testing for the virus. And then we can look at how the antibodies respond. And if you have antibody tests that are positive commonly before you're infected, then you know those are useless antibody tests. And if there are antibody tests that are undercounting, you know, by a factor of 10, the number of infected people, you know, those are useless as well. Um, but we have, we have no anchor. This science is all like floating around and it might be internally consistent, um, but it's, it's kind of like a building without a foundation. If you're going to re restructure society for the new normal, um, I, I would like the margin of error to be uh, much smaller than what you've described here with this, because it's all dependent on these testing regimes. And uh, yeah, yeah, I, I don't, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if, if, um, if the viral theory and the tests were close to perfect, we could have a discussion about, you know, what constitutional and human rights should you give up in order to stave off a crisis. Um, but given that we, it appears that this disease is nowhere near as as deadly as as people said, and it it appears that the tests have huge problems. Like how you can take anybody's civil rights away, even minor things like, um, uh, you know, making you uh, work at home instead of at at the office. Um, even things like that, you know, are not at all justified if you've got no basis for your decision. And, you know, people are asking more questions about when you as a politician, and this applies to politicians around the world, when you as a politician decided that some kind of lockdown was necessary, what data did you base this on? And, and I think the reality is that they based it on somebody, some consultant who came in with these scary graphs, and they said, you're gonna have a million deaths within a month if you don't act now and tomorrow is too late like you need to make this decision today you cannot go away and think about it and so they panicked the politicians because the politicians thought was well if this guy's right 
and I don't do anything. And we have a million deaths, you know, in our country and everybody else locks down and they don't have a million deaths, then I'm toast, right? I'm, I'm probably going to be up on war, the equivalent of war crimes trial yes. uh, charges. Uh, so it was purely, it was so easy to panic the politicians. It's, it's absurd. And it totally destroyed my faith in our political class. Yeah, and and when when it started too, I I, I kind of got taken up uh, uh, the garden path a little bit because I I when this broke, I th- assumed it would be like SARS, so I was I went back to look at the SARS outbreak in um, two thousand two, two thousand three. So I was thinking along those numbers, or maybe H one N one, and then the media and I was looking at the case fatality rate, and the media was looking at the case fatality rate, the CFR. And that was hugely distorted uh, mm-hmm. because that's, of course, based on the amount of cases you have. So the fatality rate was running at like 3.4%. Um, the World Health Organization put that number out in, I think, February. And that, if you feed that into all of those models and things like that, you get you know hundreds of thousands, millions of people dying. Um, when in fact, the, the real number they should have always been focused on, but weren't focused on, is the total infectious fatality rate, which is a more complicated estimate, right? Yeah, as somebody with a mathematical training, you know, I appreciate that mathematical models can be useful. I mean, if you think about um, uh, an aircraft simulator, that's essentially a giant mathematical model, and it's very useful. It can re- reproduce the behavior of an airplane within you know, like five decimal points. So somebody who's in uh, an aircraft simulator can really believe they're flying an airplane. Everything behaves the same. But in this case, we've got, you know, the R number, the number of people that you might infect, probably the uncertainty is like a factor of 100. And the CFR, we might have a factor of 1,000. Um, so you, you have all of these variables in the model that have huge variation and they took the worst case on everyone and came out with numbers that proved to be completely unrealistic. Um, I I had an argument with my mayor, uh, a man I voted for every time that he's run, but would not vote for him. If we both lived to a million years old, I would never vote for this guy again. He posted that everybody in my city of Calgary should wear masks to protect themselves and other people. And I posted um, a couple of scientific articles saying masks don't work. His assistant went after me, and I, I kept saying, I just want some science to defend the mayor's position. If we're supposed to wear masks, that's presumably a scientific position, so give me some science. I never got any science. I, I did get a recommendation that I go seek mental help, but <laughs> no science. Well, it's it, it, if, you go, if you go by... Like medical professionals, you know, they they wear PPE and then they usually dispose of it after you know a day work or a shift. I, I would think uh, it's disposable. But there's people out wearing masks and they're literally stuffing them in their pocket, putting them on again, um, using them, sticking them on the, you know, I, I don't I don't see how the 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 public are um, if the public aren't you know observing the same level of um yeah it's, it's completely uh, useless and and the the more stringent masks like the n95 masks that are used by healthcare workers have significant negative health effects like there's a significant 
significantly more headaches in people that wear those masks because the healthcare workers are oxygen deprived. And do we want oxygen deprived healthcare workers making life and death decisions about us? Um, but some of the PPE is taken off after you go into the room. So if you go into a COVID patient's room, when you leave the room, you take off your paper gown, you take off your mask, you take off your booties, and you throw it in the garbage. Whereas, as you say, you know, somebody might go grocery shopping with the mask, and then they go to the pharmacy and put the same mask back on, and then a month later, they're still using the same mask. Yeah. You know, you know, like it's it's like even if masks were so beneficial, um, unless they actually hand you a virgin mask at the store, there's no guarantee that it's 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 clean. Yeah. And so there's no point. I, I mean, I don't see a point in I mean, if it makes you feel then it comes down to if the, if it makes them feel safe as in, and makes others feel safe if others, you know, then you're getting into psychology, mass psychology there. And and that that can only go really bad in, in, in a social mandated like government mandating that kind of behavior to to make others feel safe. Um I don't know. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of like a religious belief. I mean, imagine you lived in a society where wearing some piece of Christian symbology was kind of negative. It was kind of mandatory. You know, you wear a crucifix around your neck or a pin or something like that. And so, just somebody not wearing a piece of symbology would be viewed with incredible suspicion. What kind of message are you trying to send? Do you hate us all? Right. Like we're we're kind of in this religious thing where your your mask is your is your sign of faith, and if you don't wear a mask, you're faithless and you you must be owned by the devil. So we need to stay away from you. Is is a lot more elements of religious fervor than there are of science? Because as you know, you've pointed out, and as these scientific papers, I mean, one of the papers I like to cite is published by. Emerging Infectious Diseases, which is a journal published by the CDC. And it says, hand washing and masks are not effective at protecting you from influenza. And, and you know, that doesn't mean you shouldn't wash your hands. I mean, I think there's times when, you know, it, it's important, but it's not going to protect you from getting the flu. And wearing a mask is not going to protect you from getting the flu. And if it doesn't protect you from the flu, why would it protect you from coronavirus? There was another study where they... Um, they had people sneeze through a mask and it really made no difference to what was coming out the other side. So infectious people are still going to produce aerosols, um, you know, if, if they're around. And of course, you might say, well, if you're infected with coronavirus, you should stay at home. But, you know, theoretically, most people who are coronavirus infected don't know it. They might think they got allergies but they're coming down with a deadly coronavirus. So they're walking around with a mask on and then they sneeze and, you know, all those little particles of virus are in the air just as if they didn't have a mask on. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't make... So I, I see, just to, to round things off on this, David, I see I see a paradigm with two sides on it. I see, I see two columns, as it were. Um, I see, uh, I'll, I'll use, I'll use uh, the cruel heading of, and some people, might know what I'm talking about here because I have said this before, but on one side I see um, 
the, the, the technocracy, as I like to describe it, is advocating for a medical surveillance. And it under, underneath that, you have synthetic immunity. I'll call it synthetic immunity because at the end, it has a the vaccine is the is the ultimate you know panacea yes. at the end of that yellow brick road. But they're concerned with R naughts. Uh, they're concerned with masks. They're looking at total running death totals, contact tracing, immunity passports, um, mass vaccinations, the new normal, c- cases and infections. Uh, the, the the eternal crisis and the other side you have natural immunity which recognizes you know hundreds of years of epidemiology science and observation and is uh, quarantining the sick and and the elderly um, achieving herd immunity and uh, extinguishing the virus at the end of the season and those are it seems to me that there's people that fall on one side of that paradigm or on the other side but the, the media, the government, the industry is definitely on the medical surveillance side. With yeah. All of that goes with that. But go ahead. I think the fundamental problem is that over the last decades, you could not be a politician. You could not be a journalist if you didn't bow down in front of medical science. So if, as a journalist, you, you write an article that is mildly critical of a, a single vaccine... Uh, it's probably the end of your career. And if you are a um, a politician who, you know, indicates concern about, say, adverse effects from HPV vaccine, something like that, it will be the end of your career. So what they have done is they filtered out, um, you know, 99% of politicians are completely on side with whatever medical science does. And so when medical science said... I shouldn't use the word science. When public health officials, who are not scientists in any sense of the word, said that we need to run to the edge of the cliff and jump off, and you politicians, your job is to round up the population so we can all jump off together, they just did what they were told. I don't believe that any any single politician asked a difficult question of any public health official, like, what is the false positive rate of this test? You know, there, we've exaggerated uh, fatality rates before early in an epidemic and discovered later that the fatality rate was much, much later, um, much, much lower. Uh, we've we found that mathematical models sometimes exaggerate by a factor of 100 or 1,000 the problem. These were questions that were not asked. Uh, every politician failed us. Every journalist failed us because they just harassed the politicians into saying, why aren't you doing more? Why aren't you doing more testing? Why don't you have a a more strict lockdown? Why are you talking about releasing the lockdown? You know, why are you letting people cut their hair, cut hair again? You know, the, the politicians were the attack dogs pushing the politicians towards the cliff. It it's, it's totally depressing. To have an entire two entire classes of people be discredit themselves so utterly. Absolutely, that's a great description. Jumping off the cliff together, and people say, "Well, it can't be one big global conspiracy because the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, and Syria did a lockdown as well, and then they're enemies of Britain and the United States and NATO countries. How could they possibly, uh, you know, been in league with each other?" And it, that's not what happened. What happened is. Um, I, I think 
the countries in the West, a lot of people took cues from China as this is how you react. You need to make a, a bold, strong statement. And that's what China was doing on everything, whether it was practical or not. The, the public facing reaction from China was big, strong reactions. Mm-hmm. And the, the West copied pretty much everything, including spraying uh, park benches with disinfectant, which they're starting to do now in, in the UK and kids' shoes, you know, before they go into school or, or the mall or whatever. We're, we're, we're going to have such a. Um a epidemic of diseases caused by overexposure to chemicals. We're going to have children with asthma, with severe allergies, because they're going to be so exposed to disinfectants and cleansers that every time they touch their desk, they're picking up um, chemicals. They're breathing in the air that was, you know, sprayed the the night before to clean the classroom. Um, We're we're just going to have tremendous health problems uh, caused by this. Regarding the delusion, I mean, I, I guess a classic example of a delusion that impacts almost the entire population would be a religion. No matter what religion you are, one of your uh, beliefs is that all the other religions are wrong. So, you know, if you're Catholic, you believe in the Virgin Mary, and if you're anybody, any other religion, you believe that's a stupid story. But there were times when in certain countries, everybody was Catholic and they all believed that. Whereas in other countries, everybody was, say, Lutheran, and they had a different set of beliefs which were held just as uh, rigidly. Another example could be the Japanese Exclusion Act in World War II. The politicians spoke against the Japanese, mostly lies. The journalists wrote stories about sabotage and plots and all this kind of stuff. And within a short time in Canada and the United States, 99% of the population were strongly against the Japanese seeing them as traitors and putting them in, in concentration camps was actually probably too good for them. They, they probably should do something much more severe. But So within a short time, the entire population, which probably had not, if you didn't live on the West Coast of the United States or Canada, you'd never seen a Japanese person. People didn't think about Japanese people. And then all of a sudden, everybody was dramatically concerned that, um, you know, their military base, their factory, their hospital was going to be blown up by Japanese saboteurs or that they were going to be uh, in the field. There was a, a Japanese saboteur with lights to guide in the uh, the bombers or something like that, right? It just how easily it is to manipulate people through fear into believing something that's totally false. Yeah. Oh, you have competing religions, competing religions in the West. And unfortunately, it looks like this is becoming a dominant one right now. <clears throat> and uh, I, I have no idea how far this is going to go and if it's going to be stopped at any point. Um, it's possible. But um, we're, we're very concerned. <laughs> we're very concerned about this possibility. It's not looking very good at the moment. But um, well, anyway, we're going to wrap this segment up, okay. uh, David. Any just uh, any final thoughts? No, I, I think this fight's going to go on for a while, even after they declare, you know, if they declare that we've conquered the coronavirus, the uh, after effects in terms of push for mandatory vaccination, uh, push for, you know, laws to quarantine anybody at the drop of a hat. You know, our civil liberties are going to have been dramatically reduced 
And if we're going to get them back, we have to keep pushing long after the coronavirus has been forgotten by public health officials and they're on to promoting the next one. And we also need to make sure that when public health officials come back again saying, oh, this is 2022 and we have another um, disease, we need politicians who are going to say no effing way. Like this time we're asking the questions we should have asked in 2020 and we're not just going to accept what you say. I, I hope that public health officials have been utterly discredited and that the new breed of politicians will realize that if you believe what they say, you're going to end up going down a very dark path. Yes. Well, we certainly have a, a good case to look at by the time this is said and done as to the uh, effects of the lockdown. Um, those economic effects are only being realized, uh, at least even on paper, uh, just this week, and it will just get worse uh, going into the coming weeks. But but anyway, we'll keep an eye, close eye on this. And uh, yeah, we appreciate your time, uh, David, on this. And we've linked uh, to your website, uh, theinfectiousmyth.com. There's a Thank link you. on the show page, uh, but also the uh, paper papers that uh, David has published uh, recently, which you can go and read. They're publicly available. Um, look at them, share them amongst your, your friends, your family. Uh, get a conversation going about the uh, various testing regimes and how accurate they are and what all the problems that this poses um, to, to society going forward. This is a conversation we need to have. But um, thank you very much, David Crow, for joining us this week on the Sunday Wire. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. There he goes, ladies and gentlemen. That's David Crow, independent researcher. And uh, do check out his work and his website. And also there's some good podcasts and discussions um, online uh, that he's been involved with that are very enlightening. I encourage people to go and listen to. If you get time, this is hugely important. It's the centerpiece of the entire uh operation, the, the, the coronavirus new normal is all based on testing. But uh, we're going to take a short break. Uh, and we're going to connect our roving correspondent for culture and sport, Basil Valentine, on the other side. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. This is the Sunday Wire. We'll be right back. Stay there. <laughs> 